And if you look um, in a lot of books on basic Buddhist teachings, you'll see some clarification of that. And or if you look at, for example, of Thich Nhat Hanh's work, uh, some of you may know a very beautiful set of guidelines. Uh, for example, in his book *Being Peace*, if some of you know that, or inter- book of, on interbeing, he has a version of this, which is basically says, "Don't be dogmatic about your views, even Buddhist ones, especially to children." You know, so it's really a so it's it's a question of how do you hold guiding views without being really attached to them in ways which are problematic. Yeah. That's not at all to say we shouldn't have views or even to say that some views are, can be very helpful. It's, but to, it's a question holding too tightly to them. So, okay. already started? Yes. Okay. Some wonderful <laughs> silence. <laughs> Beginning of, of the talk. So this morning I'd like to uh, continue with the theme that we've been exploring the last two times I've been here, which is that of emptiness and compassion. And I'm wondering how many people here did not go to at least one of those two sessions? Okay. So a little bit of review may be in order, <laughs> or else it could be a little bit confusing. Um, So talking about emptiness and compassion is one way of talking about how we bring together our wisdom, our intelligence, with our open hearts. Uh, Most broadly, in the teachings of the Buddha, as well as in many other traditions, there is this sense that... um, a mature being is one that has the qualities of clear seeing and an open heart developed to a high degree. And sometimes that's said in the Buddhist tradition in this way, that, that a person embodies both wisdom and compassion. It's sometimes said that the whole teachings that uh, that have come through the Buddhist tradition are like a bird that has two wings, the wings of wisdom and compassion. And really focusing on emptiness is focusing on a particular aspect of wisdom, which I'll explain a little bit further in in a moment. But it's to, the whole emphasis on both of these is to focus 
on how we bring together wisdom and compassion. And in our core practice, we especially cultivate wisdom through mindfulness and inquiry, through looking carefully at the nature of experience, through examining our experience, seeing where we suffer, seeing where we're caught, seeing where we have fixed views, seeing our personal (coughs) patterns, both helpful and not so helpful, noticing more clearly, noticing how things are impermanent, noticing the flow of experience more carefully. And out of that careful investigation of experience is said to come a basic wisdom that sees more clearly impermanence, that sees more clearly suffering and the roots of suffering, as well as freedom and the roots of freedom. As we see that, those practices of investigation also very much (coughs) open up the heart when we are present with our own suffering, even if it's a small kind of suffering of being in the meditation and being with um, a back that ha- that's maybe a lower back that has some pain, even mild, and we stay with that, there may be some compassion which naturally arises. Or if we stay with our own difficult emotions, let's say some sadness, or even um, some of the qualities of gratitude that were expressed in our practice at the end of the morning. But in many ways, when we stay just with that flow of experiences, like what we experienced in the practice at the end, I think probably very natural that our, heart op- that our hearts opened, just listening to the different accounts. I think a tendency to open the heart. So just being present with experience will tend to, tend to open us up to compassion. And yet there also, we also have distinctive practices that are designed especially to open the heart and to develop loving-kindness and compassion. We have loving-kindness practice, compassion, there's practice to cultivate joy and equanimity, which is the heart that can hold everything. And we can do those practices in a formal way. We can deliberately intend to open the heart. And it's a core part of our practice here at Spirit Rock to, to do that. And, and yet also we find, as we do the practices to open the heart through loving kindness or compassion, we also notice things about our experience. Just that seeing what makes it hard to open the heart brings about a certain mindfulness. And so, in a way, uh, our practices, especially designed to develop wisdom, open up compassion. And our practices, especially designed to open up the heart and compassion, lead to wisdom. So I think it's, it's, it, it's that way. And that's really the broader framework for looking at emptiness and compassion, which is a particular way of talking about uh, wisdom and compassion. That's particularly used 
in the uh, Mahayana tradition, in the, in the uh, particularly I think in the Tibetan tradition, which is what really <clears throat> inspired me. This is, um, this is from one of the great yogis of Tibet named uh, Shabkar. who was one of the great teachers, I believe, from the late uh, 18th century. He said this, I will now give you advice from my heart. The sky needs a sun, the mother needs a child, and the bird needs two wings. Similarly, the knowledge of emptiness is not enough in itself. It is essential to feel great compassion for all beings, friends, enemies, or those to whom we are indifferent who have not experienced this reality of emptiness. Meditate on compassion day and night. In thinking of the suffering of beings, cultivate a compassion that is a hundred times stronger than that of the mother for its child burned alive. A compassion that is scarcely bearable. So, this is from someone who practiced that kind of cultivation of emptiness and compassion. It's kind of a strong teaching. And that... that um, Teaching on emptiness, I'll say a few words about and say some, some further words about compassion. But the bulk of the um, morning, I, I want to take us through some practical exercises that are especially designed to cultivate a very down-to-earth sense of emptiness that, that we started to do last time and that I want to do uh, for most of the session today. And, and then next time, I think I'm going to focus... Uh, more on compassion and kind of, I think, complete the cycle of this teaching on emptiness and compassion next time. That's my, my thought right now. Um, so we've looked at the sense of emptiness. Uh, in, the Pali, in the Pali, it would be uh, um, sunya, in, in, in um, Sanskrit, shunya. And we saw that the English translation into the term emptiness can be misleading because it suggests some kind of emotional emptiness or some kind of meaninglessness. But the real sense of emptiness that's used is to point to the lack of anything in the world being solid and separate. So we could say that uh, to say that there's no solid, separate self opposed to other solid, separate selves, opposed to solid, separate strikers, bells, plants, and glasses. So it's a kind of a, it goes against the common sense view of reality that we, that we hold, which is that everything is kind of distinct, we're all kind of separate, and we go around trying to avoid running into things so to speak. Um, that, uh, and so emptiness is basically saying that way of seeing everything as separate and solid and independent is a kind of an illusion. And so it's a radical teaching. And, and in some sense, it's a less accessible teaching than some other aspects of developing wisdom. For example, we could talk about impermanence as an aspect of developing wisdom. And that's a little more accessible, even though we don't necessarily live 
based on an understanding of impermanence when it comes to me. <laughs> Such as my, the changes in my life or my aging body or aspects of impermanence like that. Though then impermanence is not necessarily desirable <laughs> or true. But in any case, impermanence seems more accessible. We can notice things changing. We can notice that we have a, even have daily newspapers, you know, which could be called you know, daily records of impermanence. <laughs> this happens, that happens. This person is born, this person dies. This empire falls into the sands, so to speak, um, and so forth. And we can see that you know, we can see that impermanence a little more clearly. Emptiness is a little more difficult to contemplate. And, and so I think it's helpful to see that this sense of an... Uh, it's really most distinctly and precisely, emptiness means being empty of a solid, separate self. And we, our experience is taken to be lacking that solid, separate self, and reality is, is taken to be lacking of that, as well as solid, separate objects. And again, we have, partly because of our, um, according to the Buddha, our uh, a core ignorance, but also we could say due to the influence of language, language has, at least uh, Western languages, tend to have words that, in which they seem to suggest that we have words for things, right? We have words for people. It seems to suggest, if our language was a guide, that every word denotes a distinct reality, right? Why not? And we also have our, our vision seems to, sometimes when we see in a certain way, our vision seems to suggest that everything is distinct. You know, other, other senses are a little different. You know, I, I like to ask, how would we understand the world uh, if hearing was our basic sense? Would we have a sense of distinct objects? Maybe not necessarily. I used to think about that a lot because my father was blind the last 25 years of his life. And I would sometimes try to place myself in his experience. I had once had a very powerful experience of um, he, had, he was doing a um, weekend meditation retreat and I was his eyes, so to speak. And I helped him, you know, around in kind of a light way to avoid things for the whole weekend. You know, but I often would, would contemplate uh, without that kind of clear vision of what we think are distinct things, what's the lived experience? You know, and we could ask that of the other senses as well, of touch and so forth, you know. And... Um, Perhaps a better word for than emptiness, and I've suggested that some, might be a quality of openness. Or even to use a word like interconnection, to talk about ourselves as interconnected or interdependent, is um, maybe a, kind, uh, a word choice that might suggest more what, uh, what emptiness is. <laughs> or permeability, or relativity, of self and an object, or self and other. 
the, the Buddha's core way of teaching about emptiness was to say, look at your experience. And this relates to the guided meditation we did. When you look more directly to your experience, he said, you don't so much find a solid self. What you find are it, what you find is a continual arising of different kinds of phenomena. You find all sorts of sense experiences. You find, uh, he said, perceptions based on memory, you know, different in different culture. You know, a lot of cultures might see different objects for what we tend, being more or less from the same culture, to see as the same objects. That's most obvious with the Eskimos' 40 words for snow, or I was told here 120 words for snow, right? That, or, you know, or people um, having very different vantage points looking at the same, the so-called same situation, you know? And um, uh, I remember there was a classic psychological study done of a football game where there was a riot, according to some people, and there were two sides of the stands, and when they asked them what their perception was of what happened, it was totally different. There was no shared reality at that level, because one, per- one group thought that there was, you know, um, one group thought that there was a complete riot and the other side was completely out of control, and the other one thought, thought that there was a friendly meeting of the other side <laughs> in different ways. So, so even there, perception, so we have perceptions and we have thoughts, we have emotions. And the finding of the Buddha is that when we look carefully at experience, we some, see something that's more like a continual flow of impermanent imper- aspects of experience rising and falling. And that we we kind of fixate on some of them and create a fictitious sense of a permanent self. But that when we actually look more carefully at experience, we don't, we don't necessarily find that. And the invocation of Buddhist practice is to really look carefully into the flow of experience and see how we tend to fixate on different parts of experience and how the sense of self tends to be created. And the idea is very much like what we find in modern psychology, which is that the sense of self tends to be a construction. Sorry to bear the news here (laughs) this Wednesday morning. (laughs) Yes, someone said good news. Well, it's actually the, the... Emphasis on Buddhist practice is to investigate this phenomenon and to see what it is, to see what this, no, this constructed notion of self is. One of the, uh, I think, best interpreters of this in recent times has been actually a friend named David Loy, who has a very interesting book, which you can find in the bookstore, called Money, Sex, War, and Karma. Somehow I think that that was the publisher's title. <laughs> Subtitled Notes for a Buddhist Revolution. And he, he brings out the way, which I think is implicit in the teachings of the Buddha, that there's something like a fundamental sense of 
dissatisfaction or wanting that causes us to grab hold of parts of experience. You know, he says that even with the most money, even with everything you ever wanted, there's some sense of things not being completely okay. You know, some sense of basic uh, wanting. He calls it a sense of lack. He also uses the language. There's kind of like in human existence, there's a basic hole in our existence that we want these things like um, a house, a relationship, a good job. We want these as if they would bring us complete happiness and total satisfaction, but they don't. They can bring limited satisfaction, but that even with all the money in the world, there's some sense of lack, even with all the power in the world as we know from the lives of dictators, they're still incredibly nervous. They don't have what they want and they, there's a sense of paranoia which develops. You know? And even with this or that experience, we somehow want more. We want something else. And uh, David Lloyd talks about this as a kind of a, a fundamental sense of lack which we try to fill up with all sorts of things. One of the things we try to do that with is a sense of self. But he says that there's this basic way that what we are is a continual flow of experience and that the response to the situation is to investigate it and ultimately to find a kind of peace by being with the flow of experience, which includes life and death, which includes ups and downs, and being with the flow of that and seeing where we get fixated on thinking that this is who I am, this fixed self with this fixed view, with this fixed idea, this will make me happy. So it's a radical teaching, not an easy teaching, right? Somewhat at times could be destabilizing a little bit, could be, could be a little bit uh, shocking. You know? you know, it's like that famous, or I don't know if it's so famous, but it's a cartoon where um, it shows a young woman on the Man- Manhattan street and she says, nuclear war, there goes my career. And the teaching here, I'll be brief on, did you want to? Well, I'm just wondering, does this book suggest then that there's a way to escape that longing? Well, we, we, we investigate it. The, the Buddhist response to the human condition is to look at it carefully and look at it deeply. And the idea is that when we continually look at that lack or that sense of lack or longing, and look at it carefully, it tends to dry up because we don't, it's like in the book titles, we don't look for love in the wrong places anymore. (laughs) Or we don't look for stability or satisfaction where it can't exist. We can't necessarily get satisfaction that's 
total and long-lasting from this relationship, this job, this condition of my body, this level of uh, economic well-being, this level of fame, this level of status, this level of power, this level of anything, really. And it's said that we need to investigate it. Uh, We need to investigate that situation. And when we do so, we find that we don't need to try to grab hold of some sort of experience that actually a deeper peace is possible by more resting in experience without grabbing hold of it. Not easy at all. This is the whole core of these teachings. And I think it's very much what we find in other spiritual traditions as well, that there's some way that the deepest peace and understanding comes from a a radical opening and investigation of the nature of things. And what we actually find, and this is sort of the other side of it, emptiness tends to stress the negative. The word emptiness in English tends to stress the lack of a solid separate self. But the... um, uh, I mentioned last time that the actual word really has these two meanings. It has partly a meaning of lacking uh, uh, emptiness in the usual, ordinary way. It's empty of something. But the, the, the word shun also means swollen, as in pregnant. And emptiness also has the connotation of full, o- opening to fullness, opening to creativity, opening to interconnection. And so in the Buddhist tradition, there are two important ways that that what could seem like a bleak prognosis <laughs> is mitigated. One of them is, is that the sense of emptiness, I think in the Asian languages, also connotes fullness. And so probably we should probably say emptiness slash fullness. And that there's a way in which when we are not so separate, we actually are vastly interconnected. <laughs> you know? And in fact, love is only possible because of emptiness. If we were separate and solid, love wouldn't be possible and interconnection wouldn't be possible. Nargajana, the great philosopher of emptiness, says the world is only possible because of emptiness. And he has a synonym of emptiness is, in a sense, interdependence, the way that everything is connected to everything else. So that's the first way it's mitigated. Was it a question of clarification? I just wanted to say, I hate that word emptiness. It just doesn't convey it to me. I I Mm -hmm. wish there were a different translation. Yeah. We have to look at your level of hate. (laughs) 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 But let me... We can use words like openness. Yeah, please. Is the way around this to say that emptiness is dynamic? Yeah. Yeah, that, that, uh, that sense of fullness conveys the dynamic sense. It's a sense of, you know, that sense that it's close to an etymology to a sense of pregnancy, dynamic, yielding, leading to something. And so, yes, um, if you want to use a word like openness or even emptiness slash fullness or... Uh, Unboundedness. Huh? That's sometimes used, too. Unboundedness is a little different, but... Yeah. but um, uh, but some sense of interconnection. It ha- would have a um, not radically, not, not rigidly bounded, maybe, maybe is another way to say it. So that's the, first, that's the first way that we can mitigate that 
maybe at first bleak sense. The second sense is that it's taken that this understanding of the lack of solid self is also the doorway into compassion and love. And in fact, that these don't exist without that um, sense of things, without that sense of um, more of interconnection. And that actually understanding the radical interconnectivity of things and the way that we tend to have a sense of separate solid self and suffer because of it is a basic grounds for the deepest compassion, for really seeing the way that that works. There's a Nisargadatta, great Hindu teacher, said it this way, Love says that I am everything. Wisdom says I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. Since at any point of time and space, I can be both the subject and object of experience, I express it by saying that I am both and neither and beyond both. Love says that I am everything. That's the sense of interconnection. Wisdom says I am nothing. That's the sense of emptiness. He says, between the two, my life flows. So how to explore this in a practical way? Very easy for what I've said just now to lead to um, conceptualizing, confusion, or saying, emptiness is a topic I will study in the future. (laughs) But not now. (laughs) So... Um, how to make it practical. I think, again, to remember that connection with compassion. I was actually going to tell a story, but I think because of time I'll, I'll do that next week. I was going to tell um, some compassion stories which really show that sense of, of interconnection and a sense of lack of solid, solid self. So three exercises that help us explore, um, help us explore that sense of emptiness and how it leads to compassion. So let's do that first one again that we did at the end of the sitting. So come back into a meditative posture. And just, we'll just do this for a few minutes, but let's, let's go back to that sense of examining the flow of experience. And, and, as, and sort of stepping back just to be with the flow of experience. And this may be a little harder. We've had a lot of certain amount of talking and but just come to your breath for a little while. And now see if you can watch your experience as if as if in that metaphor I gave earlier. It's like a slowly moving stream or maybe a fast moving stream or a moderately moving stream or river coming before your inner experience. Keep your, with your eyes closed. You can notice a thought, a body sensation and just try to stay back. Notice two things, both the flow of experience and any tendency you have to fix 
or to grab hold or to push away any part of experience. Notice those two things. Just track the flow and notice where the flow gets interrupted. It's kind of almost like sitting back and just tracking the flow, almost like if you were at a movie theater. So that was brief. <clears throat> How many of you had some sense of being able to just watch this river come by? River of flow, of experience. Any observations? <clears throat> Anything you noticed? Uh, Connie, please. Well, as usual, I was doing a lot of rehearsing. Yeah. What am I going to say when so-and-so says X, Y, Z? Yeah. So just noticing that. So sometimes uh, that can take us out of really being able to be with the flow. Our, our thoughts often do that. Any other observations? Please, yeah. I, I Ruth. saw the, the obstacle being uh, judging and planning. I would like to use A lot of judging and planning, plan. trying to get things, yeah. 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 Please, yeah. I get hung up on um, uncomfortable physical sensations. So, uncomfortable physical sensations, we say, um, this is not an acceptable movie to watch. <laughs> right? This is okay. Let's clean. Let's clean up the river of that stuff. Right? So, uh, again, what we do is we notice. We notice these things. Any other observations, Sue? Please. I spend a lot of time when, when I meditate um, thinking. Um, I'll say no or stop uh, with a thought, and then I'll come back a second time and say, like Jack says, I bow to you, but. It's always, I mean, this has been happening for months and months. It's always a second reaction to have any kind of acceptance for it. Mm -hmm. So to um, um, just some, sometimes the things come up which said about an inner narrative or an inner dialogue. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Anything else you noticed uh, in this just few minutes, please? Yeah. I was just reflecting on... Um, Emptiness this is actually an expression of we are consider mass this to be solid. Yeah. But actually it's not. Yeah. It's um, if you go all the way down in physics, you have the core and you have the electrons around it, and there's a lot of empty space there. Yeah, it's like what ninety nine point nine percent empty space. With the there's a good analogy. You have like yeah. a baseball stadium. Yeah. And you have in the middle you have a ball and there's yeah. the core. Yeah. And the stands are the electrons and the rest is all empty. Yeah. Because that's what we know on one level. So it's almost like we, have, we can use our meditation kind of to have another way of seeing our experience. We can recognize, okay, here's the conventional way that I proceed, right? I, conventionally I proceed as if they're separate objects. 
you know, I have my language, I name, there's Connie, she's totally separate than me, there's Marty, there, you know, here's the bell, I'm certainly not the bell, and, and so forth. Uh, and we, that's one way of perceiving, and it's more, that's, we can call that, some, in some traditions, that would be called a conventional or relative way of seeing things. But then we can also shift our lens, almost like we're seeing out of another lens, and we see more, and this is, you know, and this is more for a different design. Our ordinary language and our way of seeing is designed, what, for just more or less helping us to function in this world, right? It's very pragmatic. It's not designed necessarily for freedom. It's designed to have us know how to get to the grocery store and know what to get, right? You know, if someone said to you, bring me back within the context of this interconnected, interpenetrating reality, some, um, you know, some, some uh, morsels that I could eat that would have these qualities, you say, hmm? You know, you mean bread? <laughs> you know, and so we, they're really different purposes that we have different ways of seeing. So here we're looking uh, at the world and our experience in a little bit different way for the purposes of essentially seeing what causes suffering and what um, leads to freedom. So that's one exercise and you can do that at home periodically. Just sit back and watch the flow. Very interesting to do when uh, advanced practice, when you have a difficult conversation or a difficult interaction, can you just sit back and watch the flow and says, anger arising, negative thoughts arising, negative thoughts that want very much to be um, turned into actual uh, words expressed loudly with force, with hand motion. <laughs> you know, can, Notice, we can notice that, and, but, but if you can actually do that in the middle of difficult interactions, that's more, more challenging. So I think I'm going to, if it's a um, clarification, I'll take it, if, let's hold it if it's a question that opens up to something else. I, yeah. In terms of pain yeah. and having my eyes closed, yeah. I, by relaxing into it, I experience it as something that's moving, that has a beginning and an ending, and uh, it's almost like a physical metaphor for what you're talking about, watching other things that are maybe harder to watch. Yeah, that's right. Watching what happens with unpleasant emotions or sensations in the body, seeing them as arising and passing, noticing impermanence is a powerful... um, as it were, opening to this experience. So let me mention two other way, ordinary ways of approaching the sense of emptiness, fullness, linked with compassion. The second is, I talked about last time some, is, is the, whereas the first experience is more of an inner flow, the second is more of this full flow experience that we experience sort of in our, what sometimes we call peak experiences. And I've mentioned them in terms of music or sports where people would be so fully into an activity that there's no self-consciousness and there can be a deep sense of interconnection. Last time I read uh, a passage from the uh, great basketball player Bill Russell talking about how sometimes in basketball games 
he would have this uncanny sense of everything as interconnected. He would know exactly where the ball would be going, what everyone would be doing. And I brought, it came from this wonderful book by a friend of mine called Playing in the Zone, because in sports they use the phrase in the zone to illustrate that. And I just thought I'd read maybe one or two passages here. This is from the uh, British golfer Tony Jacklin. He talked about being in a kind of what he called a cocoon of concentration. When I'm in this state, the cocoon of concentration, I'm living fully in the present, not moving out of it. I'm aware of every inch of my swing. I'm absolutely engaged, involved in what I'm doing at that particular moment. That's the important thing. That's the difficult state to arrive at. It comes and it goes. And the pure fact that you go out on the first tee of a tournament and say, I must concentrate today, doesn't work. It won't work necessarily. It has to already be there. So it's a sense of being fully in an activity, which, again, we, we can experience at times. We take these to be peak experiences. You know, athletes call it playing in the zone. In music, like in something like jazz, it might be really what um, sometimes emerges, good music of an um, improvisational and cooperative nature will have that quality. Um, I find it often in uh, the flow of teaching. I think we probably all do in the activities we most love, that sometimes there are these magical moments where there's no self-consciousness, we're just totally things are just totally coming through, almost like through us would be the metaphor. We use the metaphor often, things come through me, maybe with people we're really close to. Things come through us, there's no self-consciousness, there can be a deep sense of interconnection. You know? And I know that as my teaching has matured and evolved, that I experience that more and more. You know, that when I was first taking this teaching role, I was mostly concerned of, will I do a good job? Will I do this? And it was, there was a certain amount of self involved. Will I do a good job? Afterwards, was that a good job? <laughs> Please, was it a good job? <laughs> Sometimes, or something like that. And as it develops, there's more of a sense of being in the flow and of lack of self-consciousness and just things moving and can, you know, this very privileged role of having teachings and understandings come through one. You know, it was helped by my... my, my uh, uh, person who's been an important mentor for me, John Travis, he gave me my, um, uh, some very important teaching instructions about 10 years ago. He said, when you're taking this role, and this was particularly designed for me, uh, he said, do whatever preparation you're going to do, but then when you come to the teaching role, uh, keep your attention in your belly and in your heart and your body and let your thoughts self-organize. Yeah. A very interesting model. And I always remember that. That's really stayed with me. And it, it can open up to these kind of experiences where, so it's not so, it's, it's, this is, to me, this is one of the meanings of you know, emptiness, fullness. You know, where we're there, because a lot of it has to do with is there anything getting in the way of the flow? And it's interesting that, that um, that's a metaphor used in sports, it's a metaphor used in music. Because it really, and there's something very, so th- I don't think this is necessarily really esoteric. It's something we experience in daily life. And then the third exercise, I, I think I'll just do this so we get this out here. This is, let me see if I, 
and have time to do these exercises because I was trying to do them last time and I only got two of them in. These are exercises. I think we'll just do them, try to do them in about five minutes. So here's a third way of um, opening to this emptiness and compassion in a very ordinary way. So the exercise is to take an ordinary object uh, that's around. You know, it could be very ordinary. It could be uh, part of your clothing. Um, could be a pen. Could be a piece of paper, a book. Could be the rug. Could be anything. So we're going to do some exercises with this. So take, you know, choose your object. We'll, and there, there are four permutations of this exercise. The first is just take the object. I've chosen this ballpoint pen and just be with it using, give it direct attention. Be with this for a minute or two with very direct attention. You can feel it, smell it, touch it, manipulate it in different ways. Without trying to get anywhere, just being aware of the object. And the second exercise, or the second part of this exercise, is to now, partly using your imagination, contemplate the web of causes and conditions that brought this object to the present moment. Of course, some of it we don't know, but use your imagination. Like for this pen, I can imagine that this was designed in some factory. It came on a truck. It was at a store. Someone bought it. I think this one actually, someone just left this up here and I probably just took it. Something, but just to, just bring to mind the all the web of causes and conditions. Maybe going back to the invention for me of the ballpoint pen, you know, pens for the last five thousand years. Just imagine the web of causes and conditions stretching stretching back into time.
And the third part of this exercise is to invite a quality of gratitude for what this object does in your life. It could be a minor role, a significant role. Just to invite some gratitude. Much in the way that in Zen, practitioners would bow to their cushions. It could be gratitude for however you express it, to the object or maybe to that whole web of causes and conditions. And now the last one. I'd like you to uh, role play the object for about a minute or two. So, I'm going to role play this pen. (laughs) So, role play your object. And if you need to stand up or do something, please do it. Or get down on the ground. So, just have a minute, so get to it. Notice if any sense of self arises. (laughs) (laughs) Or self consciousness. So you may, you may get a sense, these were exercises that I developed a while ago actually with Julie Wester. We were teaching a class together and we developed this, sometimes called, we call it being with ordinary objects. And they're exercises, you can connect it with the theme of um, emptiness and compassion. What the exercises we think tend to do is it takes us out of the typical way of taking ordinary objects for granted and just having them be in the world as if to be manipulated by us. Uh, so, you know, so it takes us out of that stance of, I am here, separate self, manipulating the world for my purposes. Again, which is a position we can take, and it takes us more into a place where we can open up to that sense of being more part of this web, this web of causality, this web of causes and conditions going way back in history. It's another perception. So I'd like to invite any 
reflections, responses, questions to the exercise or to anything we've said all, all morning, please. I unintentionally picked the tea bag in my cup. Yeah. And I realized it was almost a metaphor of what, what you were talking about. Yeah. Since I was this tea bag, I was steeping into my chair. Yeah. So the per- permeability into the people around me. Yeah. You know, as this tea bag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we really need empty tea bags. <laughs> So to speak. Yeah, yeah. Great. How many people found that the role play, uh, what did you think about the role play? Great. Hard. Yeah, a little bit of resistance at first. But, uh, huh? Humorous. Humorous, yeah. Yeah. So, all of these different uh, ways, you know, the first part of the exercise is immersion in the object, it's a doorway to a sense of emptiness. Immersion. The second is the web of causes and conditions. We see things as more like this vast web of which I'm part. It's a way of seeing. The third is to more open the heart and have a sense of the heart, the heart's connection. The fourth is to actually exchange roles. Yeah, so they're all doorways. You know, if we, we could, they could be the basis for extended practices. All of these, in a small way, help us to shift away from the, the uh, prevailing conventional model and get a sense more of things being interdependent. You know, that's the intention, at least. Other reflections, please. Could you repeat the four? The four are just being fully present with an object. Secondly, um, imagining the web of causes and conditions. Third is to express gratitude. And the fourth is to role play. And I think the, these, this is, makes uh, emptiness a little more ordinary. It's not so esoteric, really. Any reflections, findings, reports from that experience? Please, Kelly. I uh, picked my glass case. I wanted to pick something I thought I was kind of neutral to. Yeah. And when you said smell it, I thought, it doesn't smell like much. Maybe I could make it better. I could put essential oils on it. (laughs) And then, like, the manufacturers printed on it. I thought... I don't know if I like that. I wonder if I could take it off. So I'm like picking an object that I'm seeing as neutral, and I'm like, you know, it doesn't smell good. It just things me up on it. I can fix it and make it better and change it. It was really kind of funny because, like I said, I thought it was a neutral feeling. Yeah. So any any observations in, in light of our theme? Well, I could let it be what it was. I yeah. Mean, I appreciated it, and, and like the... Like kind of uh, modeling that, I thought what it does really is hold and protect. Yeah. And to think of myself as holding and protecting was very, very sweet. Yeah. And and partly, you know, partly it takes you out of the original purely utilitarian relationship to it. You know, and it, it actually, I mean, in a way, when your creativity enters into it, there's a kind, there, we could talk of it as a, some kind of a meeting your creativity enters into the object, it becomes less totally separate. Yeah, well, I mean, I appreciate what it does functionally. Yeah. Sure, of course. Yeah. And it could be different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Write a letter. Write a, write a letter to the manufacturer. <laughs> Any other reflections? Are you, are you, is this making sense? That this is this is, you know emptiness can be so intellectual. I mentioned last time how you know on the list of difficult and confusing Buddhist topics, emptiness is at the top, followed by not self. You know, and this is trying to make it a little more down to earth. Yeah. objects that I have and look at the history and go yeah. back in history and actually write down. And um, I felt that my relationship with the objects changed quite a bit. Yeah. Just by doing that. Yeah. 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 Yes, please. Um, when you said smell it, yeah. I thought, oh, okay. And then it was like, whoa, because it had a very strong odor. Yeah. Very... I mean, who'd have thought it? <laughs> Had you known that before? No, no, no. So it was like, wow, I did learn something about this passive object that I just take for granted. Yeah, yeah. We can also apply this exercise to people, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Although, a- ask permission before you smell. <laughs> Please, yeah. So a great observation that uh, really this kind of looking closely lets us see some of the conventionality of our concepts, you know, or the sense of it being totally distinct, right? Where does the pen end? Where does it begin? We use our concepts and our words are very much designed for a certain kind of more or less functionality, you know? Like where does my wrist begin? We can talk about the wrist, but where does it begin? Where does it end? Probably none of us has a very precise concept of it. Maybe for the purposes of uh, uh, medicine, maybe they try to do it, but we're, we don't have any, any very clear concept of that. Where does it begin? Where does it end? Um, part of this is to see how our words and our concepts tend to construct a world in which things are separate, fixed, separate from ourselves, and we tend to buy into it somehow. And here we can actually look in a different way. And what would it be like to live more moment to moment with a sense of interdependence and interconnection? You know, where, you know, ultimately this is where it opens up into compassion. You know, where, Again, it's not we're using these simple exercises with objects, but the same thing can open up for to be with others. Do you have someone really close to you? Where do you begin and the other person end? Well, uh, on the level of ideas or emotions or what you're thinking, is it so distinct sometimes? If you're really close to someone, what's what's you? What's the other person? You know, or I have 
How am I influenced by my family or by my teachers? Where do they end and I begin? You know, on all the different levels. Not so clear. So partly when we open this way, we're, we're more in, in a place of interdependence. And again, what we'll look at more next time is the aspect of compassion. That when we have that perception more, it's much harder to hurt another. When we have that sense of interdependence, it's like we have more of a sense, and this is what Shanti Deva talks a lot about in the 8th century. He says, when we really look deeply at reality, to hurt another would be like my right hand hurting my left hand. You know, that it's much harder to, to do that when we see more accurately. And so not seeing in that way makes uh, certain suffering and certain hurting, hurting of others possible. So again, oh, I want to make that connection with compassion. This is a way of seeing that can really open us up. And again, this is really, I think, what we experience when we do experience compassion or love. There's that sense of interconnection and a kind of what? A, um, um, uh, a way that the usual boundaries or the usual distinctions are not quite so firm. There's kind of a what? A, um, a lessening. In compassion or love, there's a kind of a what? A, um, a softening, maybe. A softening of, the, of that, um, the more rigid distinctions. And we take that, most of us take that to be the most important thing in life. And so maybe it's a good place to end and invite you to, if these resonated with you, um, do some of them during the week. Do them for 10 minutes a day, and I guarantee you it'll change things. You know, um, don't do them necessarily when you're driving. <laughs> Use proper precautions, um, but just in meditating or just with a meal or something, do these contemplations. They're very, they can be quite, they're very simple and they can be quite powerful. So let's just sit now for to close for 30 seconds or a minute. And if you have an intention coming out of this morning, let it be there for how you might apply this some of this. Now, I really would love if people explore this during the next week and then we come back and compare notes. So we close by remembering that we do this practice, not just for self, but for others, which is really the deeper meaning of this whole theme we've explored, and that we offer what's been beneficial out into the world, both now and in our, in our lives, for the benefit and for the transformation of the suffering 
of others. So thank you kindly for your attention and for your willingness to do the exercises, including the role play. <laughs> thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.